Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. The new administration, the Biden administration, is going to face a host of international problems in a changed world. To discuss these and some of the solutions is Ariel Cohen of the Atlantic Council, a prolific international writer. I have read him with fascination in Newsweek, Forbes.com, The Hill, and other places. Ariel, welcome to the broadcast. Is there a single overwhelming challenge for the new president? Yes, indeed. Uh, the defining conflict of the 21st century, and possibly beyond that, is the conflict between the United States and the collective West and China. Uh, nothing like that uh, we've seen probably since the rise of the empire of Genghis Khan, when collective Asia threatened uh, Europe, threatened the remnants of the civilization of antiquity and what later became the Renaissance several centuries after the Mongol hordes smashed Baghdad and Kiev and other uh, major cities, destroyed Central Asian civilization in Bukhara and Samarkand. Nothing like that we witnessed before. Of course, we're not in the hot conflict stage yet, but we are in the economic conflict. And a lot of people do not understand how dangerous it is to what we cherish as the West. And how do you think this will play out? Will it be with war? Will it be with isolation? Will it be with containment as we did the Soviet Union? First, uh, we need to evaluate whether some kind of a modus vivendi of coexistence with China uh, is possible or not. Uh, in the Cold War, uh, the collective West, the United States, Western Europe, Australia, Japan, etc., had a massive economic preponderance over the USSR. Today, it's not so easy. Secondly, the United States now is in a much deeper internal uh, navel-gazing navel exercise, internal crisis. And how do we come out of this crisis? It tends to be the thing you worry about is not the thing that gets you. Uh, we've been worrying about China for a long time. Maybe this is not the thing that's going to cause us huge trouble. Right at the moment, it would seem that Russia is bent on discomforting us. They're not in a position to overwhelm us or to conquer us, but they certainly are in a position to discomfort the rest of the democratic countries. And they are doing it every day with cyber attacks, with disinformation, and with a variety of soft but deadly tools. Uh, indeed, indeed. And we saw just uh, recently uh, massive cyber attacks. We saw uh, the uh, US uh, National Security Advisor uh, turning tail in Europe and returning to the United States. Uh, we um, need to keep Russia in perspective. As I wrote in one of my Atlantic Art, uh, Council articles, Russia is not nine feet tall. Uh, it's a country with a GDP, uh, as I like to say, uh, less than Italy and more than Spain, a GDP that is probably in the 
vicinity of the Netherlands, smaller than California, and as much of a pain as Russia is in Eastern Europe as a regional power, we just saw Turkey eating Russia's lunch in what is traditionally the Russian imperial, then Soviet, then post-communist Russian, near abroad, quote unquote, the periphery in the South Caucasus, in the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. Turkey was uh, the major ally of Azerbaijan, leading to a victory over the pro-Russian Armenia. Well, it's easy to say that we shouldn't worry too much about Russia because it has no money and it is a little consequence. And uh, it has a lot Turkey, of nukes. Uh, it has a lot of nukes, and Turkey is kicking sand in its face. So we we can discount that. But it also has uh, fearsome tools of disinformation, of distortion, uh, its ability to change the world narrative and to introduce an erroneous narrative is very severe and. Uh, in Eastern Europe, particularly in the near abroad, as you say, the former uh, territories of the Soviet Union or former independent but, but controlled republics, uh, there is a great fear of Russian invasion. Yeah, we, and I was born in the Crimea. I, I am the first one to admit, and uh, back in 2008, during the Russian-Georgia war, I predicted and published uh, articles saying, if the West does not resist Russia in Georgia, the Crimea and Ukraine and Moldova will be next. And just the other day, uh, Vladislav, uh, Vyacheslav Nikonov, uh, the grandson of Vyacheslav Molotov, he's named after his grandpa, Molotov, uh, made statements about uh, how Russia gave gifts of territory to a country of Kazakhstan, for example, and the Kazakhs are in a tizzy uh, for understandable reason, because if Russia gave the present, it can take it back. Uh, but long term, you see that the challenge is with China. Uh, Absolutely. The interesting thing about China vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union, from what I can tell, is that there is some mutual dependence between the West and the East. Uh, some dependence that didn't exist in the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the West, and that is the dependence on trade, on an exchange of technology and uh, of the financial survival of China is dependent on its ability to sell things to the rest of the world, at which it has been fiercely good. Uh, will that change? Will it open its internal economy so much that it won't need the world input into its economy? What, what we witness now is something called the decoupling, uh, when the West decides to develop its own uh, technologies that in the past we would buy the Chinese technologies and probably exhibit one is Huawei. Uh, Huawei was developing the hardware for uh, 5G networks and uh, the collective West and especially uh, the United States, the UK and others are coming to a conclusion that we cannot rely on China in such a a vital area as 5G. I'm not a techie, I'm not a tech person, but it's clear to me because I did work on strategic trade, on uh, military and dual use technologies during the Cold War, uh, that uh, the United States cannot rely on China in terms of rare earths, all these metals, rare metals that we need to uh, fuel the transition from 
fossil fuels to renewables. Uh, a place on Earth that you're familiar with, Southern Africa, used to be the main source of rare earth. If things change in Russia, Russia and Kazakhstan that I mentioned and other countries in Eurasia are choke full of these rare metals uh, that they have all of the periodic table. The Russians happy to call it the Mendeleev table after the great Russian chemist who discovered it. But regardless, in Latin America, there's lithium and others. We cannot be beholden to China when it comes to uh, these materials. Uh, the, the solar batteries that we use to generate electricity from solar, uh, the main number one manufacturer in the world is again China. What is the objective, do you think, of China, the new emboldened uh, China with its global view, its enormous and suddenly developed diplomatic skill, which was something we never attributed? Take, for example, Africa, where they found a managerial class to manage basically their interests in 54 countries is awesome. Uh, what do you think? their goal is. China always had this uh, wheel and spokes uh, model. Uh, China never built the collective security, um, the transatlantic or transpacific um, union uh, or alliance like the United States, I would say in a genius way um, after World War II. This was truly innovative, the spirit of innovation that America gave the world since our independence in the uh, second, uh, in the last quarter of the 18th century, a republic that didn't exist before, and the global architecture uh, that the United States built. Remember, and you remember, before World War II, there was no global alliance. There was a Br the British Empire. And if you were either in the British Empire or you were outside, and there was a tariff wall around the British Empire. Now, after World War II, this is all I attribute this to Roosevelt and then the implementation of Truman and the generation that came with them. Uh, we built a, a much freer world. Uh, we managed decolonization. And in the end of the day, the competition with the Soviet Union, the Soviets lost. Remember Ronald Reagan said, this is simple. We win, they lose, and they lost. Now it's a different story. Now China wants to be the number one global power. It's much more like a traditional global realpolitik competition in which China is the middle kingdom and everybody else is evaluated based on closeness to Beijing culturally, linguistically, economically. It is a Chinese co-prosperity zone. In the 1990s, we looked on the world and we saw Japan doing hugely well and everybody said, why can't we do it the Japanese way? What are the chances that China, and they were overrating the Chinese threat and that China will itself make mistakes? Uh, the thing Absolutely. about the Japanese example was it was mercantilist, the government was in cohorts with the corporations so that when a mistake was made, it was pretty dramatic and total. Well, uh, I think you put your finger in something very important. One, again, I said I love history. And in history, the Chinese 
development always goes on for about, give or take 250 years. I believe the historic processes with technology, with communication, with the internet, the, the historic processes speed up. So maybe it won't be 250 years, maybe it's going to be less. But then in China, 10 times the, the dynasty collapsed. So there was enough social unrest to bring down the dynasty. And when you watch carefully what this dynasty, the red dynasty, they call it, is doing, they're concentrating, they are controlling, they're not letting people to compete internally. For example, just the other day, the Chinese shut down uh, their rating agency. Why? Because they didn't like what the rating agency was saying about this debt-ridden companies. So this concentration, I talk to Chinese, I talk to people who work with China, and they say this is an unprecedented crackdown. Uh, Xi Jinping is not the hair of Deng Xiaoping. He is the hair of Mao. And he puts his own people there. A lot of the elites in China are not happy with Comrade Xi. And this over-concentration, this infallibility that we saw in the Soviet Union, especially with Stalin and with the party, brought the Soviet Union down. I'm wondering, I don't know, I'm not a China expert, but I'm just wondering this, the denial of free thought and free speech, what is that going to do to the Chinese economy? Seize preoccupation with government ownership. When study of 50 plus studies, I, I worked on World Bank advisory project, study after study of the World Bank said, a government run economy, a government run company will underperform the private sector. If China is really trying to revive this socialist model, the, the central control model for the 21st century, it may, just may be making this huge, huge mistake. We've talked about the annoyance from Russia, a dangerous annoyance, but probably not insuperable to our well-being. What about the Middle East? It's been a source of Contagion, if you will, uh, for uh, ever since uh, ever since the, uh, the the creation of the state of Israel, and there were other problems in the Middle East before Israel. Uh, it, it was not original to Israel, um, to the creation of Israel. Um, it went back a long, long way. Probably went back. Uh, I don't know. You're the historian. Um, did it go back before the Balfour Declaration, which was 1917? Um, you said the Balfour Declaration? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, of course, the problems in the Middle East did not start uh, with the return uh, of the Jews to the Promised Land, to what's today Israel, and not in 1917. Although 1917 was an interesting year. Uh, this was the year of the two Russian revolutions and uh, the change of the European world as we knew it. Uh, four empires collapsed in Europe, uh, the Austro-Hungarian, the German, the Russian, and the Ottoman. But back to the Middle East, remember, uh, until the British victory in World War I, the Middle East, as we know it today, was a part of the Ottoman Empire. It was ruled by the Turks. And guess who still remembers it? The Arabs. Today when Turkey, uh, Mr. Erdogan, uh, the ruling Islamist party, AKP, 
is talking about leadership in the Muslim world, in the Arab world. The Arabs have deeply set memory of the Turks running the holy places, the Kaaba, the two mosques, of the Turks controlling the uh, Northern African, North African coast, uh, all the way to Algeria and Morocco that were controlled, of course, by um, France. Uh, and the Arabs do not want to go back uh, to a Turkey-dominated world. They definitely don't want to go to the world, to the Middle East, that is dominated by the Shia. They remember, again, the historic sense in the Middle East is very different than, than in America. People remember back hundreds and sometimes thousands of years. And today you see this amazing thing, uh, the Abram Accords, in which um, the UAE, uh, Bahrain, and then Sudan, Morocco, and a lot of people are talking about Saudi Arabia, are embracing Israel. And that changes the way Middle East rolls. Uh, Israel is a small country. Uh, I lived there for 11 years. I know it well. But it, it is a powerhouse of technology, of science. Uh, I was talking to a colleague, a senior colleague of mine, who is treated for leukemia. He says, my leukemia treatments are coming from Israel. Um, so Israel may change in, in the vision that the late Shimon Peres said that I was poo-pooing it. I was a skeptic then. The new Middle East, when Paris, 20 years, 30 years ago, was talking about Israel and the Arabs working together in education and medicine and finance, in technology, a very, very new ball of wax there. Well, and the that's Arabs very are... interesting. And I've watched this with, with fascination. And I think it is a tremendous and revolutionary changes. But it doesn't actually solve the Palestinian problem. The Palestinian it, problem is continues. Uh, I do not know Israel as well as you do, but I spent right. a fair amount of time on the West Bank and the Golan. Uh, and uh, let's let's talk it, about the Palestinian problem yeah. is huge and continuing. Yeah, let's talk about what the Arabs really are afraid of, and what are they concerned with. And it's not the Palestinian problem; it's Iran, and be, beyond Iran. It's the rise of Turkey. It's a non-Arab, non-Semitic nation state. I sympathize with the Palestinians, but sooner or later, when the outside perimeter with the Arab countries, which now includes Egypt, the Emirates, Morocco, Sudan, will settle with Israel, the Palestinians probably will be the, the last ones on that bus, but they will get on the bus. But you can't, you can't blame the people because they're let down by their leadership. I think Arafat let them down. But you can't blame the people. They go on living. It's like when you say this country is a failed state, it remains a country. People are still living there. Uh, the incursions by Israel into the West Bank changed the nature of the Palestinian traditional areas where they have lived. And that's not going to make for a happy new world. Let's go what we really should be talking about here. What is Biden going to do about China, about Russia, about the Middle East? Well, first of all, um, I wish uh, President Biden, President-elect Biden, the, every possible 
success. And I wish that he has wise people, men and women, advising him. But the challenges are immense. Um, I know that President Biden considers himself a strong head in foreign policy, and I hope that he'll find his Henry Kissinger's and uh, uh, his um, you know, great advisors that uh, will help him uh, to do that. Uh, I think the uh, nomination of uh, Tony Blinken to state is solid, but uh, dealing with China, I think that we will see a hiatus in the strong anti-China rhetoric that Trump um, excelled in. Uh, unfortunately, I do not see a great outcome uh, of uh, China, uh, of Trump's China policy. We're still in a hole in terms of trade. Uh, we still don't understand how we're going to build a military muscle to keep China in check. Absolutely, you mentioned containment. The containment vis-a-vis -vis China can only come with a big coalition, India, Japan, Korea, Australia, Taiwan, uh, the Philippines. If we can do it, and we did it in the Cold War, if we can do it, uh, we have a chance. In the meantime, the ones who made the major move on the chessboard uh, are the Chinese by creating a free trade zone with Australia and, China, and um, Japan which, and the Philippines. Which was largely a result of us pulling out of the Pacific trade agreement, right. which and was a Biden, if you ask, which was if you a ask Trump. Me, it was probably a mistake. Oh, I think it was a big mistake, but uh, uh, now they're going somewhere else. Uh, let us, because we're running out of time, let us touch on a few other things that Biden will have to have a role in. Uh, one of which is, of course, North Korea and what happens on the Korean Peninsula. No good answers there. Indeed. And uh, you will see the same people who negotiated with uh, the, Kim, the three Kims or the two Kims, the father and the son, uh, will be back, uh, probably making concessions. And uh, the, Kim, uh, the Kims will pocket the concessions and continue on their merry way. And my prediction is we can revisit it in a year or two or three. The Iranians will follow the Korean playbook. They will ask for concessions. We will give them the concessions like JCPOA, the Obama era uh, agreement. Uh, they'll pocket it and will continue to develop their nuclear program, their ballistic missiles, support terrorism. And we cannot allow that. We cannot allow the anti-status quo terrorism supporting Iran, which is a militant theocracy, just hanged a journalist, kidnapped uh, uh, a journalist. Uh, let's let's and, move and, on. And, I, I tend to have a rather different view of that. I believe that uh, that we can lure Iran, Iran out of its militancy. Not with that being, regime, Luella, uh, not with that regime. Uh, that you've got a very educated people, you've got a very traditional Absolutely. ancient people, the Persians. You also yeah. have a, don't ever forget this, you have a very large, Iranian population in the U.S. So, uh, and, and that tends to affect We have a very large Chinese population in the U.S. Yeah, and some of them but, are doing things that But in a very different sense, this is a very different sense uh, in that they, the Chinese population is not 
interested in China in the way that the Iranian population has interest in Iran. Let's move on. You've got those very difficult issues. What is the future of Latin America? It always seems to be trembling on the threshold of the great step forward and then it falls backward. Are we going to see some developments there that are interesting or hopeful? Mexico, if they get the criminal problem under control, the, uh, the gangs, the cartels, etc. Uh, Venezuela, what a tragedy, what a black hole of a country. Yeah, and Argentina is again rolling back instead of moving forward and cleaning the corruption, improving the economic performance. I agree with you. And finally, Africa. It seems to me that the world has a huge Africa problem because the population is going to double in the next 25 years. There are not the resources, there, is not the, there are not the political resources, there are not the economic resources, there are not the educational resources, which means you're going to have huge migrations as well as uh, terrible local catastrophes, which will put initially a lot of pressure on Europe because it's closest and it's the most accessible in other ways, the openness. Uh, this is going to be a, a globe-changing thing, this enormous number of people trying to get out of Africa into another place, any place. Yes, and the uh, fertility rates in Africa are very high. And when this is happening, you get a youth bulge, so-called. We have so many young people uh, and young males, especially, if they don't have jobs, if they don't have education, they can riot, they can fight. Uh, that's how people were since time immemorial. So I hope and pray I'm looking at some places in Africa where there is economic growth, there is entrepreneurship. You've got to look for islands of excellence. Islands and then of excellence. Spread that that model, spread that um, uh, those policies to other places in Africa. It's a huge challenge. I wish uh, we all could pull our resources, the Chinese, the Americans, the Europeans, and work with African countries, not lecturing them, not hectoring them, but working together in the economy. By the way, while the United States was doing a lot of nice development work with, um, I don't know, digging latrines and uh, teaching good uh, agricultural practices, the Chinese were building roads and airports and ports and railroads. So guess who is winning in the African scramble? The well, Chinese it's a, it's and a very complicated issue because basically they said to the dictators, we're not going to bother you with human rights and things like that. But and now the Africans are finding they now have a new and not very pleasant colonial power to deal with. Uh, Ariel, thank you for a fabulous conversation. Your global thank knowledge you so is much. huge, massively impressive. But I would remind you, as I said earlier, don't be too despondent. It's never the thing you're worried about that comes and gets you. It's something else. So all the scenarios may yet be wrong. Thank you and happy holidays. Meanwhile, we wish you all the best. That is our show for today. And remember, not all the enemies are abroad. One of them is here. Put your mask on until you've been vaccinated and everybody else has as well. Cheers. Happy Christmas. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, 
Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we are there.